Hello there, dear listeners. Thank you very much for tuning back in. Uh, welcome to War Diplomacy, your trusted podcast on international affairs and geopolitics. As you might or might not know, this is the first episode or second season of the English series. My name is Fabio Almada, and I'm speaking to you from here from Brussels. But uh, before entering to anything else, I'd just like to introduce our host from the previous seasons once again. So first, I'd like to introduce live from The Hague in the Netherlands, Aramis Sinke. How are you, Aramis? Welcome back. How is the Netherlands treating you? Thank you, Fabio. I'm really enjoying the fresh atmosphere here in the Netherlands. Um, back in Austria, everything was really in at university dominated by like, I don't know, left groups who would describe themselves as left-wing extremists. And it was all about anti-capitalism and stuff, which is interesting as well. But here in The Hague, it's more about international relations and at Leiden University as well. And I really yeah, enjoy this this new atmosphere where, where we can discuss international relations on a regular basis and exchange with uh, interesting internationals. All right. Well, Aramis, thank you very much for that. It's great to have you closer by. And uh, and yeah, I'd like to introduce now uh, Kristen Corley, also here in Brussels. Chris, how are you? Welcome back to our diplomacy. How is this? Uh, this is your last semester at your master's, right? So how are you doing? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's going well. Last semester, uh, a lot of preparing for the the dissertation that's going to be next uh, semester also. So, yeah, that uh, on top of everything is uh, is interesting enough. Probably gonna gonna be more focused uh, study sessions in the in the weekends going forward. Uh, with that, we also have, as you also know from university, the essay season coming up in uh, in December. So going straight from that to writing the dissertation is going to be going to be a lot, but probably going to be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, no, I'm sure. Um, I also have to start thinking about the essays this semester, and I don't want to be writing in Christmas in the Christmas holidays. So I'm starting right now, and I can say that it's a bit stressful, but I think we, we're going to figure it out. Uh, well, and now, as uh, some of you, the dear listeners, have uh, already seen through our different social media or our news, as well as the new season, we have a new host to introduce. So I think that I would just like to introduce her. Tanya Ray, uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Tanya graduated from international relations at Ray Juan Carlos University. She has published different articles in international politics and international relations sites such as Vision Global or Atalayar. And she's now working here in Brussels as well as an EU project officer, providing consultation to different enterprises and town, town halls. So Tanya, welcome to Warrior Diplomacy. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, how are you? And uh, I don't know, maybe you can tell our listeners, how did you discover world diplomacy and how do you feel about joining the team? Hello, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very happy to be here. I'm now in Brussels, as you have said, um, working uh, with European projects. So, yeah, that's uh, so cool. And I've uh, been here, like, in this international environment. And, yeah, um, I, uh, it's, uh, I'm so happy, so happy to be here because um, I started to follow the, the podcast when you, Fabio, started to post it on social media. So, I, yeah, I really liked the idea. I saw it very interesting, and, and I'm here as a host. So it's uh, incredible. And it's really funny. I don't know, Chris and Armis, if you know about it, but Tanya and I, we met not in our actual university, but we met in a MUN conference in New York. And then talking about uh, these issues there, we realized that we were studying in the same university back in Spain. And uh, it was hilarious, you know, that we were studying in the same place, but we met in another continent. And uh, a couple months ago, we found uh, ourselves in Brussels again. 
Not by chance. We knew that we were in Brussels, both of us, but it was really a little bit random that we met in one of these uh, young professionals of foreign policy events. That was really nice. So, Tania, welcome to War Diplomacy. It's always a, a pleasure to add new people that are actually listeners as well. And uh, we have some new things to introduce in this system. So I just like to ask Chris, uh, how do you see this new system uh, and there's new, new things coming up? Yes, um, we, we changed a bit for the format for, for this season. I think it's going to be uh, going to be really good. We we're cutting down a bit on the runtime of the show, um, so that we get a bit more like focused discussions and and then do more specialized interviews with with guests we we have here. Um, we're now four people in our total um, host base, uh, and we're gonna kind of like uh, rotate a bit. Who's gonna do hosting? For different episodes um which also provides us more opportunity to do better research and and also a bit more in line with own interests for the for the different episodes um so the new format is going to be around uh 20 to 30 minutes uh, where we have the three uh hosts of the day having the discussion like we've done in previous season and and episodes and then it's going to be a very focused interview with a guest around 20 20 minutes so i think that's going to be a really good format it's going to allow us again to do better research and and have better focused discussions so i think that's going to be really cool and also there's a lot of new features i know that's been working behind the scenes from the tech savvy people um of our team so i think maybe aramis you can you can go through a bit of that because you know a lot more about that than i do yeah we made one very significant change that is uh, technically not so complicated and that is that we just separated the english and the spanish versions and the english and spanish channels because previously we uploaded our episodes within the same playlists and posted our postings in English and Spanish alike. And we thought that this might cause a little confusion and also it might be more comfortable for English speakers, for example, to exclusively be able to access English speaking content. So we decided to create new English channels and now the podcast itself and other things will be uploaded and uh, separate links. I think uh, this has been uh, enough updates for what's new this season in the pod. And I think it's time to go further into today's topic and start discussing why the world is currently in such a mess. All right, well, today's, uh, as you can see from today's uh, episode title, uh, Global Disorder, uh, I think this is a really re relevant way to address the situation right now. Uh, with the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, the geopolitical rivalry between the West and the East, uh, we could see that the age of international cooperation is, is pretty much over and we are getting deeper and deeper into a time of confrontation and competition. So without a multilateral order, all problems are really likely to deepen. And today we are going to touch on three different but important topics that I think that convey really well the turbulent status of today's global uh, disorder. So first in this blog, we're going to talk about a little update of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. 
in the second block, we're going to go a little bit more into an, an, a, a brief analysis of the new governments in Europe and what that means for the EU and the continent as well. And for the last block, we're just going to quickly touch upon a couple other regions that uh, I think is of uh, a lot of interest for us, which is Latin America and Asia. However, for this first block, I'm going to pass the, um, the microphone to Armis and Tania we'll, that will give us the latest developments of this uh, outrageous invasion. Yes, um, so let's get into the first example we will look at here, namely the Russian invasion or the Russo-Ukrainian war. And the invasion itself drove us further, further into this phenomenon of global disorder that Fabio was trying to explain in his introduction. Since invading Ukraine meant that Russia broke with fundamental norms of the international order, and in this section, I will look at the trajectory of the conflict and how it may lead to a further step of escalation leading to global disorder, namely nuclear war, which will then be described more uh, thoroughly by Tanya. So before I will get into the latest developments of this war, I would like to zoom out and reflect because what Ukraine has achieved in the past few months is truly remarkable. And if we only look at the latest events, we tend to forget that. As we all know, in February, the full-scale invasion started. But as soon as it was clear that Russia is not able to fight such a war against Ukraine, they retreated to the east. And that was already at the end of March, by the way. That alone is unbelievable because we all remember that before the war, so many experts were concluding that the Russian army was just way too strong for Ukraine and it would take them days to take over the entire country. And here we see within about a month the, that the Russian army has to retreat and has to focus on a relatively limited amount of Ukrainian territory, yet it's very significant nevertheless, of course. As I've explained in a previous episode, is much more advantageous for Russia because now they can concentrate their power on limited territory. Russia has a lot of firepower, or at least used to have a lot of firepower. And that is why they were able to hold significant parts of the territory so far. This might be changing in the future because Russia is facing shortages when it comes to the ammunition. Give you some context, Russia uses a lot of its ammunition from Soviet Union stocks, and those stocks are increasingly running out. So Russia will be faced with problems because its own factories are not prepared to produce the quantities needed for the Ukrainian war. And just to show you the dimension of the problem, if Russia was to resupply its, its inventory to the state before the war, it would take them decades to make up for the losses suffered in the past months. But that, that's just uh, the situation and how it might develop in the future. But let's now zoom back to the retreat from Russia to the east. and. Before Ukraine made this significant advance in the north and south of the east, many Western experts warned that the Ukrainian military might be might not be able to, to make those advances and suffer heavy blows nevertheless. And again, Ukraine proved everybody wrong and Russia conceded a heavy blow and had to retreat. Overall, we have those major successes of the Ukrainian military and Putin is faced with growing pressure. He has to show strength 
that way we can explain why he decided to annex parts of the, thoroughly annex parts of the Ukrainian territory in the east at the end of September and mobilized more troops, roughly 300,000 in Russia. He also put forward the, the nuclear threat again. What Putin wanted to gain here is that he causes another pretext for, a, for using tactical nukes because through annexing those territories, he can now claim, okay, Ukraine is attacking Russian territory, and that, that is why we need to use nuclear weapons. But just a day after Putin annexed those Ukrainian regions, Ukrainian troops actually captured Iman, which is a decisive but small city within the territory that Putin just annexed. So he actually lost Russian territory, according to his definition. As it's always been, his threat of using nuclear bombs was not not fulfilled. But what has certainly happened is that his potential lines of maneuvering become more and more narrow. And he's kind of pushing himself into a situation where it might feel inevitable for him to use this kind of weapon, which would have devastating consequences, not only for Ukraine, only in explanation marks, of course, but it might have major implications for the human life in general, because it may cause a nuclear world war. So, Tania, could you please elaborate on, on this highly important issue for us? Good point, Aramis, and um, thank you for, give me, for giving me uh, the floor. So, since the signing of the treaty on non-proliferation, uh, nuclear weapons have been used for deterrence, and that is just to, to threaten the enemy by demonstrating kind of great potential. And actually, as you have said, due to the devastating consequences of launching a nuclear attack, it is considered unlikely to happen. And this is the reason in most use, right? And also the most logical one. However, it is true that, at least in Europe, um, we haven't had any conflict of such magnitude on a large scale so far, which increases the probability of a nuclear conflict. And we are now experiencing a war a few kilometers far from our borders, a conflict that um, we also thought would be, would be unlikely. And it's a conventional war in which we are seeing uh, bombings, mobilization of troops, refugees. So I don't think it's a far-fetched idea to rethink how a nuclear attack um, is likely to be uh, the order of the day in this context. And also, um, when we talk about a nuclear attack, we should differentiate between uh, two different scenarios. On one hand, we have the strategic nuclear weapons, which uh, consist of intercontinental ballistic missiles that will cause what we call the uh, mutual assured destruction, meaning that an attack uh, of that magnitude would reach and destroy considerable area and thousands of kilometers. And on the other hand, we have the tactical nuclear weapons, which cause lower damage, but anyways, um, they are also very dangerous, of course. So taking that into account, um, and as Aramis have said, uh, one of Putin's latest declaration was that they will use all the available means to protect Russia and their people. So we only think about the use of tactical nuclear weapons, why not? Indeed, um, we are seeing how Putin is moving from a conventional war to a kind of non-conventional one, attacking civilian infrastructures and deliberately um, bombing chemical factories to cause toxic pollution. So, um, in fact, um, 
I consider a nuclear attack is not likely to happen, although concern has increased over that possibility. And in case something happens, it will be a tactical attack. But I think, again, um, it's not expected to happen. All right. Yeah, great point, uh, Tanya. Uh, I'm I'm wondering something myself, though, and uh, I'm sure also a lot of our listeners uh, want to know, uh, what do you think of NATO's perspective on the issue? Uh, you're you're here in Brussels and you're interested in security, have insights into the workings of, of NATO and other institutions. Could you maybe elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, um, thank you for the question, Chris. Um, specifically, NATO states a nuclear attack is unlikely uh, since Russia is being very transparent about the uh, movement of troops and where the nuclear weapons are stored. And therefore, uh, we can conclude that although the use of nuclear weapons is not completely ruled out at the moment, um, it's not considered possible. Um, also, the U.S. hasn't seen any evidence that Putin is moving toward using Russia, Russia's nuclear capacity, and there is neither any intelligence evidence that uh, he has decided to do so. Um, but we, we should bear in mind that a nuclear attack would escalate uh, the world to a completely global level, since uh, it would have consequences not only for Ukraine, but for the rest of the world. So taking that into account, uh, which consequences uh, would entail for that for the country that launched uh, that attack? Because uh, in this case, uh, we must remember and keep in mind that Russia's right to veto in the UN Security Council. And remember, um, Putin has already convened the Security Council and veto power allowed Russia alone to stop a resolution that sought to condemn the annexation of Ukrainian territories. For this reason, um, Ukraine insisted on the need to reform the organization so that Russia doesn't have this right to, to, to veto. Um, but I, I think it's a radical solution. And, and it's true that experts are concerned about that. And, and they are thinking about either adding more permanent memberships to the Security Council which I think is uh, unproductive, as it would like slow down the decision-making process, or, or the other way, changing the structure and, and how it works. And it is perhaps an important question that perhaps we should rethink for the future, right? Like to avoid any country from escaping uh, from UN punishment as a result of uh, an attack of, of that magnitude. And, and I think this will be constantly a debate or, or a topic in the political agenda these days. That That is so true. So who knows what's going to happen? And, and taking on that, I think in this second block, we can talk a little bit further into these new governments in, in Europe and what they represent. Going uh, into our second block, I think we it'd be really interesting if we give our listeners just a little update on the, on the news and on, on the European agenda. And maybe, Chris, uh, I think it'd be interesting for you to give us a little oversight. How do you see this new government? Let's talk about Italy first, and then we can all talk about this whole crazy situation in the UK. So how do you see the new Maloney government in Italy, and how do you see uh, its consequences for the EU in general? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And and I think like for, for the listeners who probably already know a bit, but just to give, give some context, is that uh, what happened, basically, is that... Uh, Fratelli d'Italia, which is uh, led by Giorgia Meloni, um, won the election that was hosted now a month ago, the, at the end of September uh, 25th, if I'm not mistaken. 
which was following uh, the downfall of Mario Draghi's government earlier this summer um, due to fractures within the coalitions there. Draghi's government uh, had been sitting since early 2021 and fell in line now with uh, already a very long list of Italian governments that have come and went since the post-war era. I think we're sitting now at 69 governments in less than 70 years, which approximates to around one government a year. It's an interesting uh, interesting line of uh, a chain of events there. But uh, unfortunately, what we're seeing now in general in Europe, and, and Maloney is a testament to that, considering Italy being one of the largest economies uh, of Europe, it's quite significant having having this uh, switch towards a basically post-fascist party uh, now leading the government there. Um, the, Meloni gained a lot of attention during the past couple of years, especially during COVID, and also now uh, leading up to the election that that was held a month ago. Both through rhetoric and symbolism, parties using the uh, fascist flame there. And also policy-wise, there there are a lot of a uh, lot of policies that uh, are similar to to what was seen during the fascist era. What this means for Europe, I mean, it's again with with one of the largest economies of Europe uh, now uh, turning turning towards the hard right. Uh, it's it's concerning, and we're we're seeing it in a lot of other places. I think the most similar one we will have examples of now is. Maybe uh, Viktor Orbán, Hungary, uh, that has been kind of falling into this illiberal democratic regime for for quite some time now. I don't think we should suspect that Italy has become uh, that it has fallen that hard into it uh, already. Uh, but it's concerning and and seeing the rhetoric, especially concerning going back to this nationalist roots and and working against the the rights of minorities and. LGBTQ plus uh, populations, it's it's concerning, and uh, and I think that we should definitely keep an eye out for that happening elsewhere in Europe. We've had also uh, elections in Sweden uh, earlier this month that where the the Sweden Democrats is one of the largest parties, um, and this is a wave that's going for Europe right now. We've seen it also in the election that was earlier in the fall in in France and uh, these governments uh, now it, it even though Macron uh, didn't didn't lose um, it doesn't mean that Le Pen who who was one of the main opponents in the election is gone and that this is basically going away anytime soon so i think it's uh, it's concerning to see that around europe now i think uh, yeah. yeah covid definitely had an had an impact on this, uh, you know, two years of people sitting inside, not really uh, feeling oh, yeah, security, definitely. and then having this rhetoric that that poses, you know, easy, easy solutions to complex questions might have might have an impact on this, and we've seen it. No, yeah, yeah, in the U.S. So I yeah. agree, Chris, and not just the U.S., but uh, most of the countries in, in the European Union have had this uh, research of, of far right politics, which is uh, a little bit sometimes um, scary, you know, with the rhetorics that they have been uh, saying. And first, before actual Brexit, there was a lot of anti-EU uh, and uh, Euro, Euro skepticism in their discourse. It's true that 
once Brexit was done, this Euroscepticism has decreased its strength, as we have seen how the UK has gone into madness. And I think that's something that I wanted to quickly address in this block as well. Guys, what the hell happened in the UK? Uh, least trust. Oh my God, you didn't outlast the letters. You were there for six weeks. I don't know if you've seen this video where when she went to and talked to the king and he was like, oh dear, oh dear, it's you again. So I don't know. I just wanted to to know, guys, what? How do you feel about this? Like, how can someone mess up their economy that bad? Like, you you assume that economists have a good idea on 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 the grasp on the economics of your country. So how come has this new government made such a big mistake? I don't know if you guys have been following the UK recently, but I just find it incredible. So uh, let's see what happens in the coming weeks. Uh, some people say that Boris Johnson might come back into the stage. Definitely, um, I don't know if that's uh, if that could happen. I think it's a possibility. It's also true that the Labour Party is um, wants to do a general election, but we know this takes time and uh, I don't know. I feel like uh, it's not a good time to be a, a Brexiteer for sure. I mean, mm -hmm. it's an uh, interesting symbolism in the the death of the queen earlier this fall considering the state of uh, state of uh, the uk right now and unfortunately it seems like uh, it was it was the time to for for everyone to to kind of you know open their eyes to see that there's a situation going on now that's kind of dire and and i know that in in the uk it's for a lot of people especially with with this economy is getting really bad and Brexit, as you were talking about, now you're already seeing uh, demonstrations uh, in in the UK with several thousands meeting uh, to to protest that the UK should rejoin the EU. Wow! Um, Imagine. <laughs> Imagine so that's that's a whole lot of money that was spent on a long process that didn't, hasn't really given given the UK all the control that they wanted back, and now they're. Um, I mean, they would be better off with the EU, but the, I, I mean, that might be a personal. No, but I mean, I think we are we are a little bit biased on this issue because we live in yeah. the EU, we're European citizens. Three of us live in Brussels, so I mean, it's true that we have a more pre pro European approach. But I mean, come on, like if you see the economic uh, status of the UK since <clears throat> they left Brexit, it made no sense. Like I, I understand well, where it came from, and I think there's a really good movie that we should recommend, which is called Brexit by Benedict Cumber Cumberbatch, and it explains oh, yeah, a little bit the reasoning behind Brexit, and and it has such a nationalistic um, reasoning behind and how they exploited it. But if you think about like the younger generations' uh, uh, living standards, maybe it was not the best of decisions. Uh, I don't know. How do you feel about it, Tanya Aramis? Do you think Brexit has? Uh, improve the situation for uh, British people? Actually, I think uh, they have seen that uh, they have lose more than win. So uh, I think maybe they are kind of regretting about that decision. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like I've heard a lot of, of uh, young uh, English uh, people that I've studied with, I've had uh, exchanges with, and they say this exact thing, like they had a, an opportunity to study all over uh, other 27 countries, uh, so many opportunities to develop their careers in European institutions, and now they can't, right? So maybe for certain parts of the population, it seemed like a great idea, but people like uh, you and I, maybe it was not. So it's a shame for those uh, young professionals, but I mean, geopolitical events have consequences for everyday citizens. So it's a shame. Uh, maybe we'll see Scotland uh, breaking from the UK and joining the EU. Personally, I think that would be hilarious, <laughs> but uh, I don't know if that's going to happen 
it's true that breaking away from the pound is really hard for Scotland, so not sure if it's going to no, happen. And, and I, actually, it's a pity because um, you you have you cannot see. I mean, it's difficult to see the opportunities that the EU the, the EU uh, the EU bring you, and and it's a pity to see them once you are out of the EU. I don't know if this has happened uh, or you've heard about it, Chris and Tanya, that you guys live here in Brussels. But when you meet people that are not European, the amount of um, of legal problems, well, not problems, but legal obstacles and, and every process uh, that they have to go through and all the paperwork is really hard. When you're here oh, as yeah, a yeah. EU citizen, it's it's a crazy amount of, of work. You're, you're not, it's not in your shoulders. So, I mean, imagine you're a student living here in Brussels and suddenly uh, your country leaves the EU and now you find yourself uh, with half of the opportunities. That must be horrible. So, I don't know. It's a shame. It's a shame. What I wanted to say, especially in regarding to the rise of Meloni and um, in general right-wing politics, as we've now seen in the UK example, is that many people now tend to think, okay, you see now the those evolvements and this might lead to conclusions that right-wing or extremist right-wing politics are on a popular rise in Europe. And what the data clearly shows us is that is not the case. Um, in 2015, there was the refugee crisis, and that certainly had a huge impact on right-wing politics, and it gave a rise to it. But what we are seeing right now is, is actually not a rise of right-wing politics, but we just see existing right-wing parties taking over governments or becoming part of them. Um, so what we are seeing is that they become more accepted. Coming back to our overall topic of global disorder, I think this is highly relevant because those parties are less likely to accept those international norms and they are less likely to engage in multilateralism. So this might also have significant consequences for the global order um, in general, as Europe is such a decisive actor when it comes to maintaining um, the, a rule-based international order. Oh yeah, Armin, that's a, that's a great point and a way, uh, an excellent connection of this topic to our uh, the title and and the um, the main point that we want to address in this in this episode. Um, and yeah, like uh, maybe going into our now our last block, the third one. Uh, just a, a quickly way to wrap up this this uh, this second block is exactly that idea that maybe the EU is um, that there's this such a thing called the Brussels effect, which uh, policies made in the EU have a um, a lot of, uh, of um, like echo around the world and policy that is made here. It's sometimes followed around the world. And I find it really interesting that when there's divisions among the EU and inside the EU, how can how can this global actor actually reproduce its influence abroad? So that is one thing to have in mind as well. So I think it's time to go into the last block of this episode and do like a couple last remarks on other regions that unfortunately we would love to to talk for hours, but for time reasoning, we're just going to quickly go over. But I am sure that in this second season, we'll have a lot of new content in new regions, new guests, new topics. So that will be really interesting to to follow. Uh, maybe we can talk about uh, other regions and, and we make a quick update uh, about them because uh, we have uh, we cannot be all the time uh, we cannot spend a lot of time uh, with this but uh, it's also very important. So Fabio, uh, what 
you did you prepare for Latin America, Asia? What do you have? Yes, well, just to briefly mention the, the um, what's been happening in my in my region of origin, I think the um, the thing that we have to highlight the most is the Brazil elections that will happen. Uh, well, the first round happened in, in the beginning of the month, where almost 120 million Brazilians voted in the first round for either Jair, Jair Bolsonaro, the right wing populist who has been president since 2019, and uh, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, commonly known as Lula. He was the, the leading one in the polls, but uh, the race was really tight. So they have to go on the second round on the, this week. So it's really tight and, and uh, it's true that Lula is the favorite, but it's still not known. So what I really wanted to highlight in this blog is why is this election important? And the first thing that I wanted to mention is that Brazil is one of the largest, if not the largest economy in Latin America. So its policies, its environmental policies, economic policies, they have a lot of importance, not just in the region, but in the entire world. So uh, another Bolsonaro um, presidency would continue to mean uh, that there's going to be a lot of erosion in the separate institutions, democratic institutions in Brazil. So that would that could hurt the legitimacy of uh, other democracies in the region. Uh, we see in his discourse how he was really uh, inspired by Trump, uh, especially the January the 6th uh, insurrection. So a lot of people are saying that if he doesn't win, he could try to uh, deny the results and refuse to give up the presidency to Lula, which could lead to violence. It could, it could lead to political and economic instability. So this is the thing that we have to have in mind. I, to be honest, I don't know if what's going to happen. I can't predict the future, but I, I have seen his, uh, his discourse, his discourses, his speeches, and he has openly said that he's only going to recognize uh, his victory, and that there's one way to take him out of of government, and that would that would mean killing him. So when the politician speaks openly like that, what does it tr uh, convey to its uh, its population? Right? Like we know how dangerous it's to talk uh, these things out. So I think we have to have an eye open for Brazil and maybe some violence will spread. I hope it's not the case because I have a lot of, of um, friends in Brazil. Uh, I think it's a lovely country. It's a democracy. So hopefully things don't go to that side. And it's it's horrible whenever there's uh, violence. So hopefully that doesn't happen. What's so worrying about the, the whole situation in Brazil is that Brazil used to be a military dictatorship up until a few decades ago, in contrast to the USA, for example. And so when after Trump won, you had some militant Trump supporters that were worrying, but overall you have the security apparatus, which ensured that he wouldn't stay in power since he lost the election. But in Brazil, you, you still have this military elite that could potentially side with Bolsonaro and I also heard rumors that there are some um, high-ranking um, individuals in the military that tend to side with Bolsonaro and so we may not even know what what we might be up to. Uh, so Fabio, maybe if you know more in, in this regard, I would be really interested to hear that. For sure. Well, uh, it's definitely a possibility. I mean, I'm no expert in, in uh, Brazilian politics, but it is true that there is a lot of support from the military towards uh, Bolsonaro and his movement, especially because all of his policies of giving them more authority. Uh, also, there's a lot of, uh, of support towards his uh, uh, support for uh, owning guns so that the population owns guns to protect themselves from criminality. 
we know that this is not the the way to mitigate with criminality. However, there's a lot of support from that side as well. Uh, to be honest, and this is just my opinion, I don't think that the military would uh, side with him if he decides not to accept the, the victory of Lula, if it's the result of the election. Because I think that Brazil still has strong institutions, despite of Bolsonaro and his movement trying to uh, erode them as possible. I think that there is still a lot of, of uh, separation of, of the power in there. And I think that the military has a lot of influence. That's true. But I don't think that they, it, it's going to go all the way for them to support um, an insurrection, which it, it's definitely an, uh, an insurrection because the elections in Brazil are fair. It's true that there's a lot of voting with machines, uh, but this has been the, the case in previous previous years. So I, I don't think that that uh, justification is even worth um, supporting. But uh, we will see. We will see. The election is going to go down this coming week. So let's have an open an open eye for that. And lastly, guys, I just wanted to briefly mention this other region of interest, which is Asia and more specifically China. I think you guys are aware that there was this uh, the coming the Chinese Communist Party conference these past weeks, and I don't know if you're aware of this video of uh, Hu Jintao, which used to be the Chinese uh, president in the 2000s. He was taken out from the conference, and it's really interesting to see this because you can start to to see that there might be some um, dividing lines among the party and how Xi Jinping strongly sending a message. I think that uh, having his uh, taking him out of the place in such a public public way and broadcasted way is uh, a message being sent. Maybe it's a way to tell the techno technocrats in, in the Chinese party that that time is over and now Xi Jinping has the absolute power. I don't know if it's a stance against the, the like those those politicians that lean further towards the West. But I think it's really interesting, and I'm sure that uh, Xi Jinping is going to get his term um, reinstalled, so he's going to be there for a long time. And I don't think that China is going to drift away from that policy of uh, going against, not against the West, but not uh, following the Western, Western view uh, geopolitically and, and in general. Well, first of all, I would like to highlight how, how, how what a symbolic action that was by by the Communist Party, if if you could say, okay, it's an action by the Communist Party. Some say he was just um, ill and this was kind of needed to treat him. This dude sat right next to Xi Jinping and there it is known that they are in, in bad relations with, or that they have some differences and that they represent different power structures within the Communist Party. And in the middle of this Congress, that guy just gets forced to leave his seat as he sits right next to Xi. And in the aftermath of the Congress, no, uh, of the conference, no explanation was given on why that happened. Overall, such a highly symbolic action that, in my opinion, rather clearly shows that this was mm -hmm. a, a way of showing power. Oh, absolutely. I could definitely have seen that video with like a House of Cards soundtrack behind it. And 
I don't know. It was just um, it was it was crazy, you know, like having it so publicly done. It's really weird for us to see these kind of things in China, you know, which they behave in such a mysterious and enigmatic way. And to see videos like that all over, I think this has to be a clear message from the Communist Party. Well, guys, uh, I've loved the episode so far. I think it's it's uh, great to be here back again with you and discussing these really important geopolitical and economical uh, developments in the world. I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are really excited to have us here back again. And maybe just to conclude this episode, I'd like to ask you if you have any topic in mind that you'd like to touch this coming uh, season or anything in those lines? Oof, there are so many, unfortunately, so no. many events in the world today. Uh, like there always has been, but I mean, uh, in the today it feels like we're we're living in the in the end times oh yeah but, in the global uh, disorder yes we we definitely are living in the global disorder so i i i mean um maybe touching upon things that can be a bit more constant and where we can actually see uh some light at the end of the tunnel would be nice oh yeah it's not just about bad news here in war diplomacy but you know sometimes we gotta talk about the the worst um unfortunately and really sadly that's mostly the case with the war with the environmental disaster and econ an economic uh recession jesus christ sometimes i i listen to these things and i get a bit depressed not gonna lie but uh i mean we gotta go on right we gotta go on in my case that i really like uh international security and in defense topics uh i hope uh I don't have to, to speak a lot about it because uh, I prefer to live in a peaceful environment, actually. But but yeah, uh, unfortunately, um, maybe we, ha we have to discuss uh, some topics uh, about that. Oh, yeah. And uh, something that I I talked a lot with Sergio, the, the host from the Spanish version, is that there is a difference between the world that we live and the world that we want to see. And unfortunately, uh, the, the things that are happening, they are happening. Like, even if we don't want them to, they're still going to be there. So... At least it's nice to uh, talk about them and trying to uh, commonly find solutions for them. Uh, what about yourself, Aramis? Uh, any interesting topic in mind for this season? Anything of, of uh, your personal interest you'd like to talk? Yeah, so we heard about a lot of negative um, like perceptions on, on the world and how it might develop in the future. And yeah, looking at the Russia-Ukrainian war at... Um, the developments in Latin America, yeah, we certainly get a grim picture, but to, what, to point towards something more positive, there is the uh, climate conference coming up, as in every year, um, in next month, I believe, and that will hopefully bring about some positive change, maybe even a positive sign of multilateralism. And um, yeah, I would be really happy to discuss the aftermath of this discussion and hopefully we will be able to draw some positive conclusions. No, for sure. I think COP27 will be interesting. It's going to be in Egypt. It's going to be the first uh, COP meeting in Egypt. So that will be interesting to follow. Anyways, guys, it's been a pleasure to have you here again. Uh, I'm really excited for this new season. And yeah, so I guess you can find us here in Spotify or any other platform that you follow. Uh, also, reminder that you need to, you should follow the new Instagram uh, and Spotify channel dedicatedly solely for the English version of the of the podcast. And yeah, thank you for tuning in. Okay, bye. See you next bye. time. Bye.